The death of George Floyd in Minneapolis set off weeks of demonstrations across the country and around the world and has started serious discussions about action at every level of the U.S. government. We'll ask an African-American law enforcement leader what policing has been like and where it goes now. That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminal injustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your personal nerd, geek, and guide to all things in the criminal system and still somehow working at that day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Welcome especially to this, the beginning of our new eighth season. We're refocusing and re-engaging here. Between the time of our last interview in the pre-pandemic era and now, we had to take some time to figure out how to do what we do since, well, no more going to the studio, at least for a while. The pandemic really did change things. But then, on May 25th, another event occurred. This time, the killer wasn't a virus. It was a police officer kneeling, putting all his weight on the neck of a prone, handcuffed, defenseless black man named George Floyd. As Mr. Floyd begged to breathe, to survive, the officer knelt on his neck, hands in his pockets, looking like nothing so much as a person waiting in line at Subway for a sandwich. And the whole horror of that was recorded on video for a million, million people to see. From sea to shining sea and all over the world, a man murdered right in front of us with not an ounce of concern or empathy or humanity. And the country, the world, just exploded. You can hear it in this audio from Inside Edition from ABC Los Angeles and the Dallas Morning News, among other places. Demanding their voices be heard. When I saw the video of George, George Floyd getting murdered in cold blood, I've never felt anything like that in my life, man. To know that there's so many people just trying to do the right thing and make a life and just live. And the police brutality that continues happening to black people over and over in this country is unacceptable. And we're sick of it. No justice, no peace. We all really are like victims of this. And when it comes down to it, it's really like, you're a citizen, you're a civilian. This is happening to civilians, you know, so. At the end of the day, we as the people have to be fed up and say enough is enough. Enough is enough. Enough is enough! Listen, we have to make a decision. Black, white, brown, tall, skinny, short, it doesn't matter. One injustice, one place, is an injustice in every place. And we gotta come together as a people and declare that I'm not tolerating this anymore. Black lives matter! Black lives matter! Don't shoot! Don't shoot! Now, this feels, in a certain respect, something like the time after the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, and the death of Eric Garner in Staten Island, New York in that same period. Anger, outrage, demonstrations. It was really the genesis of this podcast. We wanted to create a source, a place for serious discussion of what seemed wrong with the system, and not just with policing, but from top to bottom. But also, I have to say, this feels different to me. This feels bigger and, if anything, more angry and overall probably more of a turning point. For one, there are just way more people out in the street in literally hundreds of places in the United States and even around the world demonstrating and saying that black lives matter. And these people aren't just Black people, but all kinds of people, a lot of people, a lot of 
white people seem fully aware suddenly of what black people have always faced. And it's undeniable that the reforms that followed Ferguson were either not enough or they were deliberately derailed by the existing power structure or not taken seriously or they just failed. Now, the calls aren't for reform of the police everywhere. They are even calls to defund, dismantle the police. Just days after Mr. Floyd's death, nine members of the City Council of Minneapolis said that they would vote to get rid of their police department and replace it with something else. They're not even sure what. But for them, they believe that they can't keep going with what they have, and it is no longer possible to believe that they can fix it. That is a remarkable thing. Whether you agree with it or not, it is just remarkable. Now this, anyone can see, is a new reality. The status quo is, for many people, bankrupt and just not endurable anymore. So what happens now? Well, there are ideas and proposals, and you can bet we'll be discussing them here. That's a lot of what we do, but we're going to be very intentional. First, we're going to ask the deeper, harder questions that you may not hear or read in the rest of the media where stories get two, three, five minutes tops on the electronic side, um, we take it as our mission to do more. We always have, and we'll keep doing that. Second, we will center the voices of African Americans in this discussion, and that will give us and you the opportunity to listen to those voices. I think this is especially important anytime I hear someone, and almost always a white person, say in the wake of George Floyd's death, wow, I never really knew how bad this problem was. Well, the fact is that black people have been talking about this for years, really forever. But many of the rest of us have not really listened, or we found it too easy to dismiss. Now is the time to listen and hopefully to really understand even as we struggle to conceive of what happens now. Some of those uh, we will hear on criminal injustice are police themselves. Some are not. They lead or inquire or write or solve problems in other areas with different tools. But every black person has an experience of police that is quite different from the rest of us. The writer and Pulitzer Prize winner, Nicole Hannah-Jones, says in one of her essays, and she's addressing white people when she says this, she says, and I'll quote here, it's possible, this will come as a surprise to you, but to a very real extent, you have grown up in a different country than I have. And that, I believe, the reality of that is what we need to understand right now. What does that mean and how can we create one country with, in the words of that old poem, with liberty and justice for all in a real sense? A good place to start is with a very large, very essential question, I think, for all all of policing. What do we do now? Do we, as some want, defund, dismantle? Do we reform? What will work? We have someone here with us on this episode, and he can talk about all of that. He's been a part of policing from deputy sheriff to chief at several organizations at every level of government, local, state, and federal, for decades. He's an African-American man and a clinical psychologist. He's thought very deeply about all these questions, and he's ready to answer ours. Our interview was recorded by Zoom, and all those little computer noises and alerts, that's on me. 
Dr. Cedric L. Alexander served in law enforcement for four decades. He began his career in 1977 as a deputy sheriff in South Florida, moved to the Miami-Dade Police Department, where he served as a detective between 1981 and 1992. And since then, he has held a variety of top leadership positions in law enforcement, including chief of police in Rochester, New York, deputy commissioner of the NY State Division of Criminal Justice, chief of police in DeKalb County, Georgia, and director of public safety in DeKalb County. He is a past president of the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, and he holds a doctorate in clinical psychology. Dr. Alexander was a member of President Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing, and he's the author of in Defense of Public Service, How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic, published in January of 2020. We'll have a link to that book up on our website. Dr. Cedric Alexander, welcome to Criminal Injustice, and thanks for being my guest. Well, thank you for having me. Great being here with you. I appreciate it very much. Uh, before we get into the really deep questions uh, facing the country right now, uh, could you tell us first what drew you not just to public service, which we know is important to you from the title of your book, but to police service in particular? Well, that was uh, probably so long ago, I don't even remember anymore. <laughs> but, uh, I always had an affinity to move towards uh, public safety ever since I was in college and, and very early in college back in the 70s. I had to drop out of school for personal reasons and uh, one of the first jobs I got, real jobs I got, was with the Sheriff's Department there in Tallahassee, Florida. So that's really how my career began uh, at that time. And then I just uh, send it on to do a number of other things over the course of the next uh, 30 or 40 years. And you must have found something that you really liked in police work because you stuck with it. Well, administration. I got out of police work in 1992. Uh, I was in Miami at the time, working at the Miami-Dade Police Department. I decided to go back to school, do a doctorate degree in clinical psychology, and uh, left policing for a few years, and came back to Miami to do a internship at University of Miami Medical Center, and then postdoc at the University of Rochester Medical Center. And it was there in Rochester after working at the medical center there for about five years. Uh, the mayor and I became friends, and they were having some issues inside their organization that he wanted me to work with them on with my background in policing. And I ended up becoming a deputy chief there in Rochester and subsequently chief. And uh, that's how really 20 years ago, my career started as a police administrator. And I went on from there to work at New York State Division of uh, Criminal Justice uh, for a couple of years and then on to Homeland Security ran. I ran the TSA operation there at uh, Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport for five and a half years. And I had about 2,500 employees. Uh, I was responsible for during that time, uh, post 9-11. And, um, and I decided I wanted to police again. And I went to DeKalb County, Georgia, uh, where I spent four years as public safety director. That is quite a career arc right there. And it makes me uh, ask uh, interesting questions, I think, about your personal choices. You were, you were suited as a police officer and then as an administrator, and you have this extraordinary background uh, added to that of clinical psychologist. Um, did you find uh, that for you uh, as an African-American man, uh, that the job held particular challenges, that law enforcement as a field was particularly challenging, or that other officers that you served with or supervised, that they were particular challenges because of issues of race? Yeah, my, uh, my being African-American had nothing to do with uh, uh, any decision-making or leadership responsibilities I took on at that time. Uh, my being a psychologist, however, probably had everything to do with the fact that it allowed me with my training the opportunity to be able to observe and 
to be able to understand individuals that worked in a variety of different roles in large organizations and how to best utilize their strengths and challenges to make an organization work well. I don't think I could have, uh, and certainly was no intention of going back into policing, uh, but uh, understanding uh, psychology and understanding how people think, feel, and see the world, uh, having a better insight into that certainly helped me tremendously in, in terms of managing people inside large organizations. Well, that's the psychology angle has got to have given you a boost and a, a kind of inside track to managing people. And uh, I, I think that's so interesting because we talk right now in the current moment so much about getting people to behave in ways that really do uh, represent the best values of their organization and really do uh, um, uh, put them in the best possible light as they serve in what is a difficult job. Um, did you have challenges like that in your first uh, jobs in police administration in Rochester or in some of the other spots? No, I'm pretty straightforward kind of person. Uh, I am, uh, I like to think as being a democratic type of leader. And I think there are certain things that you can be somewhat democratic about. Uh, but there are going to be often times in public safety when you're responsible for the lives of the men and women that work for you and also uh, the public in which you're held responsible to provide public safety. I take on a pretty significant and, uh, and responsible leadership role. And I am one who will make decisions uh, when they need to be made for the best interests of those that involve not my interests, but their interests. So for me, uh, my leadership style and how I get things done, oftentimes I work very hard to get it done through people by motivating them and encouraging them and giving them a sense of vision and a reason for why we're doing the work we're doing. And that all begins with my attitude and how I see and feel about things and that get transcended down through the organization from assistant chiefs right on to chiefs assistant chiefs and right down to the last person hired so uh i take leadership very responsibly uh but i also lead with a great deal of uh, uh or have led with a great deal of purpose and vision and uh, making sure that we gather as much information as we could about a particular situation so that we can make the very best uh, decision about whatever it is that we may have been confronted with. Now, as you describe your leadership style and philosophy, one thing that occurs to me is that right now in this moment, we're hearing a lot about accountability in law enforcement, how it's so critical uh, and uh, how it's sometimes lacking in particular organizations, not holding officers accountable for misconduct. Number one, do you agree with that diagnosis that that is a part of the problem? And number two, how do you as a leader, how do you as a police chief, how do you address that in a law enforcement organization? Well, I tell you how I addressed it. Uh, everyone has to be held accountable. I am held accountable as a chief, as a public safety director to provide safety to a community. Uh, everyone that's in my chain of command has a particular role or position or they have an area of responsibility in which they have to be able to assure they're able to provide the very best that they can for the public. We're always looking for ways to be creative, to be innovative. We look at technology, we try to study uh, leadership and how it's best uh, uh, prescribed in the environment that we're in under that particular set of circumstance. Uh, but what's really important for us as in any organization is that you must have accountability. I must be held accountable for what I've been hired to be responsible for. And that has here again to transcend down through the entire organization. But oftentimes we hear the word accountability being tossed around. Uh, but do people really um, exercise real accountability? 
That's my question. Yeah. Do they really exercise real accountability? And I can only tell you from my experience, that was always at the forefront of everything that, that we do. That means for me, being held accountable is that the community had an opportunity to assess how well we were doing or not doing. Not just my bosses, those elected officials, but the community in which we serve. It was always great to hear from them in terms of are we getting things done? It was always great to know that uh, for us, that whatever it is that we were doing, if we had an officer involved shooting, for an example, mm -hmm. make sure you're accountable for that type of situation. Well, we don't do our own investigations when it comes to officer involved shootings, particularly if they're fatal. We go outside the organization. We have an independent group come in, whether it's state police or another outside agency that has that is removed from our own organization where people work with each other and know each other. And we bring in outside investigators who will come in and do a very open and transparent and fair investigation, not based on any personal bias towards anyone inside our organization, but more important than anything else, it gives the community a sense of confidence that knowing that we're not trying to assess ourselves during a police involved shooting, but we turn that over to an outside agency in which they have confidence in in which demonstrates to them that yes, we want to be transparent and the only way we can do that in an honest way in the eyes of the public is to have someone on the outside do that as attempt to do it. Can we do it ourselves and, 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 and do a fair and equitable uh, investigation? Yes, we can. Uh, but the public is asking for more today. And they're asking for more today because they're beginning to question the credibility, they're beginning to have questions around trust and uh, legitimacy in policing. And rightly so, if you go back and look at some of the things that have occurred across the country, and we can say, well, hey, that wasn't my department. No, it was not your department. However, in the eyes of the public, they see policing as one large profession. And unfortunately, when we do something great, uh, we all get applauded for it, but when somebody go out and do something foolish or silly, silly or criminal in nature, then we all have to take responsibility for that now. And that's kind of where we are in this country at this very moment. Well, that is so interesting to me. You know, last week I spent some of my time testifying in the state Senate here in Pennsylvania, and uh, there were several panels of witnesses from the law enforcement agencies in our state, and they made it very clear, uh, number one, that they thought that they would not make the kind of mistakes that were seen in Minneapolis, but number two, that they resented anybody tarring them with that same brush. And what you've just said, I think would have been a good explanation for why they kind of have to see themselves as one profession. Mm -hmm. That's right. Because if you and I hear about, uh, a surgeon out on the West Coast doing something crazy. Mm -hmm. We talk about someone in another profession or even in the university profession, you know, as a professor, whatever. And unfortunately, oftentimes, and we hear that consistently, we all are end up going to get broad brushed, right? We accept it. And we have to accept that just as much as we help have to accept uh, when a fireman goes in and rescue five children's out, children out of a burning house, we all want to take accolades for that. So just as much as we take accolades for good, we also have to take uh, 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 and meet the challenges that come to us when someone goes off rails. It's, we all get painted with the same brush. But I oftentimes remind law enforcement of this as well. We ourselves stereotype. And we stereotype people based on things we hear, see, and experience. And is that right? No, it's not. But isn't it funny that when you get stereotyped it's yourself, it's really not a good feeling. <laughs> you have to take that experience of right now being stereotyped because every officer that's out there does not have the attitude of those men that killed George Floyd are other incidents that have come under grave concern in this country around policing. 
the majority of the men and women out there that are doing their job every day are doing a great job. The problem that we're having, David, in policing today is that when I hear 99% of my department is a great department, I'm concerned about that 1% because if that 1% is allowed to exist inside of your organization, then what does that say about the large organization? It's holding on to, it's, 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 it's maintaining individuals that's allowing the entire barrel to become tainted. Oh, that is such an important point. It really and, is. And we have to take responsibility for that as opposed to just 99% of my guys are great guys. No, 100% of them need to be great guys because what happens, those several people inside any organization, I don't care whether it's in business and in industry, in public safety, in the judicial system, wherever it may happen to be, we cannot any longer allow ourselves to have those types of personalities, attitudes, and behaviors to exist inside of our organizations. Because what it does, it creates a negative image for all of us. And we all in some ways are complicit from the fact that we know who they are, but we do nothing about it. I could not have said that better. Um, and with your deep enforcement experience and your management experience, it really does resonate. I mean, I've heard that bad apples argument forever. And you're really right. Um, it is not the apples. It is the barrel that allows them to stay in there and, and, right. and turn the whole thing to rot. And That's if you right. don't, if you don't get rid of your bad influences, you'll get a toxic atmosphere and attitude throughout the organization. Right. That's correct. And if you look at ex officer Siobhan, who put his knee there on the neck of George Floyd for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And the other three men who, for whatever reason, uh, did not go beyond uh, saying, shouldn't we turn him over? Uh, I'm quite sure at this very moment, they're questioning themselves and saying to themselves, I could have and should have done more. But the most important piece to me when it comes to Officer Siobhan, here is a guy and what we saw him demonstrate is an indication of me, to me, in a gross, in a gross kind of way, somebody who's really got something going on upstairs, who has absolutely no compassion for a crying man who want to breathe, cannot hear people on the sidewalk begging him to let the man breathe. And even when he passes out, he still doesn't have any sense of compassion or remorse to lean up off him. And now, what kind of individual is that? Who is that person? And how does he for 19 years exist inside Minneapolis Police Department? And who else inside that agency has attitudes and behavior, potential behaviors as he does, to be able to carry out such an act in broad daylight in front, which ended up in front of millions of people and didn't care about the fact he was being videoed, didn't have, didn't show no remorse, no compassion, no moral compass. Who hired this guy? How did he ever get hired? Who supervised him? Because some of these attitudes and behavior had to expose themselves. But if nobody inside the organization do anything, it's just not the four of them who are complicit. The whole organization is complicit because there are things that should and could have been done to, 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 to intervene. And it's not the fact he had 18 complaints over 19 years. Anytime that you're in the public service business, you can work at the front counter of McDonald's, you're going to have people who are going to complain. Sure. There had to be other indicators. There had to be other indicators. And it suggests to me that if we have organizations where we see bad apples and we don't do anything about them, or we slap them on the, on the wrist, but we see the behaviors over and over and over, then we have to ask ourselves, what's wrong with our organization? You go to the Breonna Taylor case there in Louisville, Kentucky, young woman in the middle of the night who lose her life for nothing over a no-knock warrant that probably should have never been issued 
and an irresponsible police officer that comes in blasting and shoots this unarmed woman eight times. And here's the sad part about it is, now that they get to look at his personal file, indicators were there, but mm. they all don't to him. So when I hear uh, uh, today, when I hear folks now wanting to do something about it, you're only doing something about it because of the outcry that is going around the globe. But where was that responsibility of taking action inside that organization before now? And don't blame all this on the unions and said it was the union's fault because they have all this protection from, from discipline. That may be true, but who negotiated that away? That was negotiated away somewhere in the process. And if yes. unions negotiated that for their for their do, uh, 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 for their membership, you can't blame it all on the union. You have to blame it all on who were the leaders at that time when those contracts were written and signed that I'm going to give up all these rights for discipline for this. That becomes the bigger question for me. Right. It's a structural issue. I mean, it's you said yes, yes. You said so much there that. Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, I spoke with a police chief who I know pretty well and admire a lot uh, after Mr. Floyd's death. And he was emphatic. This is not a training issue. In fact, Chauvin was a trainer for the department. This is not a policy issue. This is a human being issue. He had no humanity, showed no empathy uh, as that man died. And I think that is what has struck so many people. Let's take a quick break at this point. We're with Dr. Cedric Alexander, former police chief in Rochester, New York, uh, among other places, the author of the new book, In Defense of Public Service. We'll be right back. Stay with us. There's more. everyone, David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice, and our guest on this episode is Dr. Cedric Alexander, former police officer, former chief of police and departments in various areas of the country, every level of the local, state, and federal government of the United States. Uh, he is also the author of in Defense of Public Service, How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic. And we've been talking about the current state of American policing, the demands that we are hearing now for change in police departments all over the country in the wake of the death of George Floyd, the death of Breonna Taylor, and so many others. Dr. Alexander, I'd like to come back to a point you made a few minutes ago. Uh, you said in your last answer, uh, don't blame the unions. The unions have only taken the power ceded to them, given to them in contract negotiations. Uh, was that a problem for you as a police leader? Because I'm hearing this all the time now from members of the public and public officials. And what I've observed over the years is that instead of negotiating a contract, maybe with bigger raises or benefits or something, instead, little by little, the disciplinary process has been given away uh, in collective bargaining agreements. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that has happened before that new mayor has come into place, before that new chief has come into place. So it may not be uh, at any fault of a current mayor or current chief. Those things could have been in place for a very long time, or they could have been renegotiated under a new mayor or a new chief. So each city is going to be very different in terms of those circumstances. But the point of it is here, uh, when people say it's, it's, it's the unions that are so powerful and, and it's the union's fault, I think that's, uh, I think that's a, a, certainly a mischaracterization of what actually takes place here. And one thing I am uh, uh, that's very important to me is to be fair to everybody involved. 
And yes, unions can be very challenging to deal with and negotiate with. But the fact of the matter is, whatever is negotiated and what are you agreed to in a handshake or a signature at the end, you as a city administrator or a police chief or whoever makes that final decision, you have to own some of that as well, too, uh, for an example, when it comes to discipline. Uh, but you certainly cannot just pass it all off and say it's totally the union's fault because that is not a, uh, that's a mischaracterization of what the overall structural issue is in all of this. Yes. Uh, I want to go back to something you said a moment ago is, is yes, it's a structural issue, uh, but all that goes back to, it's also who we're hiring issue. Ah, can you talk some more about that? Yes. Yeah. Because we can hire folks, we can check your background and we can check your driver's record, credit history. We can go talk to your references, blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, what you're looking for in a police officer today are people who are, have a sense of humanity, people who have a moral compass, people who have a sense of compassion. I can train you to fight, to run, to shoot, to do all the things that you need to be able to do if you get yourself in a precarious situation where you have to protect the public or yourself. But here's what I cannot teach you. I cannot give you a moral compass. I cannot teach you compassion of humanity. If you don't come equipped with that already, then you're not going to get it later. And if you somehow get inside of an organization and you don't have those types of, of, of uh, 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 character values, if you will, and you slip in, you should be into such a healthy community, whatever that community may have to be, in this case, policing, is that when your behavior comes out, others will push in on you to either correct it or either get out. One of the two. But if you can survive inside any organization without a moral compass, without compassion for people and a sense of humanity, then that whole entire organization is diseased. Yes. Well, that is so interesting. You know, we had a guest on here not long ago, Jack Sarir, who was then the the sheriff of the county, excuse me for not knowing this, that includes St. Paul, Minnesota, not Minneapolis. And he was part of a program for years where what the, uh, they called it hiring for character. Mm -hmm. And that was what they did. They didn't look for, do you have experience in the military, which is of course fine. Are mm -hmm. you, uh, you know, are you a certain height or something? They, they turned to their community actually. And they said, what character traits are you looking for in a police officer and it was honesty it was the ability to talk to people it was uh, a conviction about the importance of the job are you saying that that you would want to turn towards that sort of hiring mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well that's where you want to go you want to look for people who are want to be guardians and not warriors yes but when it comes time to fight, you have the capabilities and equipment to do so. But that is not why you come on the job. You don't come here to be a warrior. You come here to be a guardian of your community. And to be a guardian, it also must mean that you be trained in how to de-escalate, how to talk to people, how to calm situations down. And in situations that you cannot, then you're also trained to be able to take whatever adverse action you need to take to keep your public safe and to keep yourself safe. Because that is clearly a very important part of being a police officer as well, is to serve, but also having the ability to protect. Yes, it's both. And the warrior to guardian transition was one of the key recommendations. I think the very first one in the, uh, the report of the president's task force for 21st century policing under Obama, on which you served. That's uh, so I take it that was pretty important to you. And I've had people ask me, well, what does it look like to be a guardian police officer? And you've kind of just described it there. Yeah, the guardian police officer is merely fundamentally what policing was designed for when it was created by Sir Robert Peel in, in, in England. 
And it, it primarily was basically to prevent crime, to be there as a public servant, to be part of the community. And his motto and slogan was at that time, police are the community and the community are the police. Absolutely. Think about that conceptually. That defines policing and what it should be. It's not going out looking and, 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 and being abusive or being judgmental or bringing all your isms with you uh, into this. We all have isms, but do we have the insight and ability to recognize that we have them so that we don't put them on other people, but we're, what we're able to employ is a U.S. Constitution that is our governing, guiding North Star, if you will, that when we're out there, that's what we do, that's what we use to carry out our duties. And we have to do it consistently across each group, every group, regardless of race, culture, creed, religion, sexual preference, whatever the case may happen to be. If we follow the Constitution, when we're out there enforcing laws, then we won't find ourselves in this trouble we often find ourselves in. But the most important thing, we're conscious of who we are. We're conscious of the fact that we all may carry some unconscious bias. And those that have explicit type of bias attitudes, they cannot be subject to any type of job or be given any kind of attention when it comes to public service. You just are not a fit. But do you have people that slip in the back door? Yes, you do. But if you have a healthy system, if you have a healthy organization, they will correct themselves in that organization and because they know their attitude is not the norm or that that organization will spew them out. And that's where policing across this country is gonna to have to take responsibility for their own and not just excuse the fact, yes, we have a few bad officers. That is no longer acceptable. If you have a few bad folks inside your organization and you're not making some determination, using some, uh, 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 have any data that you're collecting or analyzing or utilizing to determine that certain behaviors are just becoming too apparent, too frequent, too often, too intense, and you maintain them inside your organization, then shame on you. Then the whole barrel is at question. And that is unfortunate because the good men and women inside those organizations have to take that hit as well. But yes. it's the responsibility of those organizations to get them out. And even if you're stuck with these very challenging discipline uh, contracts around discipline, if you will, and, 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 and it's hard to get those men and women out. You know, my good friend Chuck Ramsey, as we all well know, one of the most respected law enforcement officials in the country who's now retired. And Chuck Ramsey would tell you when he was at Philadelphia, I believe it was, he's hired, I mean, he had to fire officers two or three times and they returned. And there's many cases of that. Oh yes. It's doing, but he, they fired, they go, they, uh, to negotiations and they come back several times, same individual. But here's what I will say. Even if you are stuck with that, you still have to create a culture inside your organization that makes it very difficult for that person to exist inside of it. Because if they can come back and exist and be comfortable and kick their feet up on the table, then you have a much deeper problem than that one officer who's been fired two or three times. How do you make that culture unwelcoming to that kind of officer? What does it take? The challenge becomes, the challenge becomes is that we have to challenge ourselves. I have to look at myself. I have to look at everyone at my command staff who I appoint in most cases. My appointments are those who are already there when I get there and who can su subscribe to my philosophy. And if they can't, I'm going to move them along. But the point of it is, it has to start from the top of that organization. We have to have literature and banners around the office that talk about taking 
taking responsibility for those who are not taking responsibility for themselves. Being able to, you, you know, this like we have signage around police stations around, here's a number you call for, for alcohol abuse. Here's a number you call for mental health help. Here's a number you call if you want to talk to your union rep. Well, you know what? Here's a number that you call when someone is acting out inside the organization. And what's the responsibility of first-line supervisors? What's your responsibility to make sure that you know each and every one of your men and women that work for you? You know their behaviors, you know their attitudes, and are you role modeling as a supervisor what I expect for you to as a chief? Because if you're not, then all the way up that people are going to get hits all the way up that chain of command. Whoever your patrol commander is, whoever your patrol captain is, everybody is going to take responsibility to make sure that the person below them is carrying out and acting out behaviors and attitudes that are going to be benefit that are at the best benefit to the people that we serve and not to ourselves. And if you can't, then you're going to get called on it. And I don't care whether you're in second command to me or you're the last person hired. Everybody have to take responsibility. It's a commitment inside that organization. It's a commitment that has to be made by the elected officials, whether it's the city council or it's county commission or the CEO of that county or the mayor, whoever it is, everybody's going to take responsibility to the fact that we're going to have an organization. We're going to have a police department. Me as an elected sheriff is going to have a sheriff department. And this is how we're going to conduct ourselves. We're going to be fair, we're going to be unbiased, we're going to enforce the law, and we're going to have a sense of compassion and humanity towards people. And if we have to take care of business, then we will take care of that business, but we will do so under appropriate measures at that appropriate time. Yes. We will bring the appropriate resources into play if we need to neutralize a threat that is a threat to the community or to ourselves. You know, rocket science. No. Leadership from the top of that organization. Yes, indeed. Um, you wrote an extraordinary piece uh, that appeared on June 1st uh, on the website of CNN uh, after George Floyd had died, obviously. And it begins like this uh, I am a black American man who has been privileged to serve in law enforcement for 40 years. Today, if a young person of color asks me what they should do if a police officer stopped them, I answer, put your hands on the steering wheel where they can be seen, cooperate and comply. And should they answer me back as they likely would today, even if I did that, we are still getting murdered, I would have nothing to say. With my decades of experience, I would have nothing to say. I just thought that was an extraordinary thing from a person who's been in law enforcement, has the depth of experience that you have. And I wonder, what would you say? Are there things that can be said? What are we working toward that will allow you to have something to say? Let me tell you something. Post Michael Brown, uh, I was the national president of Noble. National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. Yes. And uh, I was on the ground in Ferguson. Tom Jackson, who was the former chief at that time, I called him up, offered support or help to him. And, uh, and if he didn't want to accept my help, then I assured him that I would be on the other side of the fence. Ah. It wasn't going to be good for him uh, or his city or his police department. Uh, but Tom, a very gracious man who I got to know over the next, and during that time, over the next few weeks, months, uh, just really a very good man. And even though he was portrayed as a Bull Connor of the 21st century, he really was a kind and really uh, a really good person who wanted to do the right thing. But Tom Jackson also knew that it was time for him to move on. And he had that process on his own. And he was open to, to, to much of our conversation. He and I became really good friends. We had late night conversations around what needed to happen next as all this was going on. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and he worked very uh, honestly with me in trying to help him in his city move forward at a very challenging time. Also during that time as president, uh, we created a program that we put out across the nation, a noble did, that allowed young people, and we did training at our various 50 some chapters across the country. Uh, we brought young people into churches, community centers, and we did training about what to do when you're stopped by the police. It's unfortunate we had to train this specifically to people of color, which I have some concerns about. Yes. We should not have to be isolated and uh, in be trained as to specifically what to do. But during that time, we had a number of events. If you remember, David, Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland, Eric Gardner. They kept coming. Uh, Orlando Castile. And I mean, I mean, every week it was a shooting that was a major concern that created pause and anger with people across America. So we teach kids and we tell them here are the things we need to do. We did a national campaign and other organizations were doing the same thing. But over time, when these young people do exactly what they, what have been, they have been trained to do and they still look around and see somebody put their knee in the neck of a George Floyd who was not resisting, who was handcuffed and who was killed right in front of all of us. When they look and see Albury, young man down in South Georgia, jogging through a neighborhood, run down by two guys in a pickup truck who shot and killed him in front of all of us and with a judicial system down there that gave the appearance that they were trying to provide some cover or weren't gonna take any real action. And the perception is they all were just incestuously involved with each other. It creates this why I've done everything you've asked me to do, Dr. Alexander, mm -hmm. and it ain't working. It leaves you speechless. It leaves you totally speechless. So the answer to their question, I found it very hard to answer because they did exactly what we had. Many of them did exactly what we asked them to do. But when they look around, they see that people are complying but yet they still end up dead. So the, the, it's no longer for me to answer that question. That question is gonna to have to be answered by the profession, by policing. Mm -hmm. They're gonna to have to answer that question. I'm not gonna take on that burden. They're gonna to have to answer to their community people. I've done everything you asked me to do and I'm still getting shot and killed. So mayor, elected officials, chiefs, those are the, you're gonna to have to provide an answer. And right. while you're providing an answer, tell me too, so I'll know as a yes. black man in America. And, and you know, that, that leads me right to what we hear a lot of people saying, uh, and I want your reaction to this. Um, well, you haven't had any answers for me. I do everything and we still have George Floyd. I think a lot of people are saying we should defund the police. We should abolish the police. We've even had a city council in the United States of a major city, Minneapolis, take the position that there's no going to not going to be a police force as we know it in Minneapolis. Uh, can I can I ask for your reaction to that? Well, well we're going to have to have enforcement. We're going to have to have men and women who will go out, who are trained uh, to go out and protect our communities and keep us safe to take reports, to have follow-up investigations, uh, to have a judicial process. When people are apprehended, they are brought to justice and go before a court system and they have due process. We're going to have to have police. The question is, what do we want police to look like in the future? And I think, and it's a very simple answer to me, is that the fundamental structure of policing should be challenged. And, and I think it's gonna take those in policing that are trusted by the community and those community members uh, who are going to have one motive and one motive only, only, and that is to look inside their police department because it is their police department, work with their leadership 
and go through each, each part of that department, go through its standard operating procedures, look at use of force policies, look at all the policies that exist, and together make a determination as what needs to remain the same, what can we do better, and how we can create new policies to create a new structure. But more importantly than anything else, David, what has to happen, if you wanna create a cultural change, we got to look at who we're hiring, how we're training them, and then how we're supervising them. That's where it all begins, at the beginning. Who are we bringing into our organization? And once they're inside the organization, are we adequately training them? Is the attitudes, behaviors are of instructors, are they role modeling and demonstrating what we want them to be for the five or six months that they're in the academy? And then once they're released into field training officers, are they demonstrating and role modeling the behavior that's expected? And then in their supervisors, when the squads that they're on, are their supervisors, the men and women that stand there every night in front of them and tell them what the mission is for the night? Are they demonstrating role modeling, the type of attitudes and behaviors that's expected, that's expected? And that goes right on up to the chief of police. And whatever that attitude of that chief is resonates down to the last person hired. This is not rocket science. This is accountability inside an organization with leadership to understand chiefs and sheriffs, public safety directors who understand that we're going to treat people out here with respect and decency. If we have to fight, we will fight. However, we're going to treat people with respect. We're not going to demean people. We're not going to act out of character. And if you're having a bad day, that is no longer an excuse. You need to go home if you're having a bad day and come back later. If you need some mental health intervention, you need to say that so that we can get what it is that you need. Because yes, we know policing can be stressful, but that cannot be the point of a defense once you have screwed up. Because whatever it is I may have been experiencing, maybe I'm going through a divorce when my kids have left and the, the seeing tragedy sometime day after day or seeing negativity, it compounds, it cumulatively affects me and everybody manages it different. I have a responsibility to say something and my bosses have a responsibility to observe and pay attention to my attitude and behavior and work performance every day. Because if they can't do that, then what's the purpose of having a supervisor? So now in Minneapolis, it's been reported you got a, a, a dozen or so sergeants and lieutenants who have written a letter to say in Minneapolis, what happened was shameful, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know what? If any of you supervised him, if he existed inside your organization for that long a period of time and nobody approached him or spewed him out, then you're just as complicit and your letter don't mean a damn thing to anybody. That is Dr. Cedric Alexander. He is a 40-year law enforcement veteran, an authority on American policing, a clinical psychologist, and he's the author of In Defense of Public Service, how 22 million government workers will save the republic published in january of 2020 thanks for being my guest on criminal injustice and thank you for having me everyone wants to keep their home and family safe whether it's from a break-in fire, flooding, or a medical emergency, Simply Safe Home Security delivers award-winning 24-7 protection. With Simply Safe, you don't just get cameras and sensors, you get the best professional monitors in the business. They've got your back day and night ready to send police, fire, EMTs, whatever you need when you need them most straight to your door. 
Now, when my family had the job of selling our family home after it was empty, we knew we needed a security system we could count on. My brother, the electrician, the guy who's the most tech-savvy of all of us, he recommended we go with Simply Safe, and boy, am I glad we did. It was easy, it was affordable, and it was good. It performed, and we were safe. Simply Safe protects every inch of your home. You can set it up yourself in just 30 minutes. It's really easy. Then Simply Safe's professionals take over, monitoring your home 24/7 and ready to send help the moment they get an alarm. Plus, with Simply Safe, there's no long-term contract. There are no hidden fees and no installation costs. Right now my listeners get a free home security camera when you purchase a Simply Safe system at simplysafe.com/injustice. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. Visit simplysafe.com/injustice for your free security camera today. That's simplysafe S I M P L I S A F E that's simplysafe.com/injustice And now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly and this story of a lawyer behaving badly from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel law.com and the ABA Journal News Online concerns lawyer Stephanie Rapkin of Shorewood Wisconsin in communities all over the US in big cities and suburbs and small towns people have been marching in protest of the deaths of George Floyd and so many others that's what was happening in Shorewood, Wisconsin over the weekend of June 6th and 7th when lawyer Rapkin managed to get herself arrested. On Saturday, June 6th, as hundreds of people marched down North Oakland Avenue in the town protesting, Rapkin seems to have parked her car in a way that blocked the march and then confronted some of the protesters. The protesters urged her to move her car, according to the Journal Sentinel. Lawyer Rapkin reacted to this by spitting in the face of one of the protesters, a 17-year-old African-American. She was arrested for this bad behavior, which was, of course, caught on video. But that was not the end of bad behavior for lawyer Rapkin that weekend. The next day, June 7th, she confronted a college student outside her home who was writing messages in chalk on the sidewalk, including, quote, I spit on a child, close quote. According to a video of this confrontation, Rapkin told the college student that she spat at the man the day before because the young man had attacked her. And then she attempted to demonstrate the attack by appearing to shove the college student who was writing with chalk, shoving him in the chest. Police were called again, and when they arrived, Rapkin again reacted by kneeing a police officer in the groin. Bad behavior arrested again. All in all, lawyer Rapkin was arrested twice in one weekend and now faces two charges, a felony charge of battery on a police officer and a misdemeanor disorderly conduct charge for spitting at the young man with an additional hate crimes sentencing enhancement on the misdemeanor. The felony carries a possible sentence of up to three years. The misdemeanor with the hate crime enhancement carries up to a year in jail and a $10,000 fine. Lawyer Rapkin is now free on a $10,950 bond. Her initial court appearance is now scheduled for July 24th, and we will be following this for you. One other detail. A complaint with the state bar has already been filed against Lawyer Rapkin. And that means that whatever happens in the criminal cases against her, she'll also face professional consequences. It's hard to see how this conduct is not, at a minimum, quote, damaging to the reputation of the profession. Prediction is always hazardous, but I'll throw one in. 
at a minimum, suspension from practice. Nothing less should be acceptable, and something more would be absolutely appropriate. That's this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And that wraps up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed, if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. Review us there, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website, criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Well, you can call and ask Dave at 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name where you're calling from and then ask your brief question. You can also get a question to us through our website. There's a tab there that says Ask Dave and we'll get that question on the air. Remember that we are listener supported. If you like what you hear and you want to help, do that by going to patreon.com slash criminal injustice. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.